Hello, and welcome to the new Art of the Cut podcast brought to you in partnership with Frame.io. My name is Steve Hullfish. I'm a feature film and documentary editor. For more than seven years, I've been speaking to my colleagues in film, TV, and docs about the art and craft of editing. My goal is to ask the kind of questions that you'd ask if you were given the opportunity to chat with some of the world's best editors. If you're interested in reading this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to blog.frame.io, where there's a ton of great expert content for film professionals of all types. Today, we're talking with the editors of WandaVision, Nona Kodai, ACE, Zine Baker, ACE, and Michael A. Weber. Tim Roche also edited the series but couldn't join us on this interview. Nona has cut numerous TV series including The Boys, Amazing Story, Colony, The Strain, and Constantine, among others. Zine was editor on the feature films Men in Black International, Thor Ragnarok, This is the End, and The Interview, among others. Michael has cut Neighbors 2 and has numerous additional editor credits, including Men in Black International, The Night Before, Neighbors, and This is the End. His TV credits also include the series Greek and Friends from College. Just at the very beginning, if you could say who you are so people could go, oh, that voice is this person. I'm Zine Baker, one of the editors on the show, WandaVision. Great. I'm Nona Kodai. I'm one of the other editors of WandaVision. Yeah, I'm Michael Weber, another editor on it, and we're missing, unfortunately, Tim Roche today. Thank you for being here, everybody. I appreciate you taking time out of your day. I know you guys are on to other projects and have other things to do, but this is just such an interesting series, and it was kind of interesting, the evolution that I saw, at least in the fans, of the first couple episodes. What am I watching? And then people getting it, right? How were the episodes delivered to you? Did you have an overall view when you started editing or were you working on one episode? Tim did episodes one, four, and seven. Am I right? I did episodes three, five, and eight. And Zine did episodes two. Two, seven, and... Two, seven, two, eight? Yeah, if we're going to go with the scene order, then two, six, and nine. Two, six, and nine. Got Thank it. you. Yeah. We worked on an internal episode numbering system the whole show. There were nine episodes released. There were 10 that were originally written, and they combined two into one. And that happened so close to shooting that it was too late to change the numbering of everything for the sake of tracking and dailies and so forth. So... We've all operated under, under different, different numbering systems. You know? so like, we have to really think about it, like which one? Okay, the one that aired. Yeah, okay, okay. Just for fan interest, what two episodes got combined or what got dropped to make it a different numbering system? Five and six got combined yeah. to five. It was 80s and 90s, I think that's what it was. And so they made that 80s, 90s blend. Yeah. I believe that's what it is. <laughs> so back to kind of the original question for you when you're editing, do you need to know the flow of what is about to come? For example, oh, this is going to be revealed in the end. And so it's interesting for me to hold on this reaction longer because it might not make sense now, but it'll make sense later, that kind of thing. Sometimes we don't know because I think it pays off in other properties too, right? Sometimes we're not privy to those things, but the heads of the studio know and are like, hey, 
maybe you should do this or why don't you stay on that shot? Or I think there's a lot of that happening that we're not always aware of too. Not in the beginning. Not in the beginning. They'll tell us late in the process, you may want to consider this, like Nona said. The series unto itself, I'll say that, yeah, we're more than any other show, I think. We were very much in tune with each other's episodes so that we could have that context that you're talking about. It's like, well, this look, this simple reaction shot here could tie into something coming or something that's already happened. We were very uh, keen on sharing ideas in each other's episodes. I'm just continually impressed with other editors. So (laughs) it's like, like, ooh, that's cool. I know we had some motivation problems in certain episodes. And so we would solve them in earlier episodes, say there was a motivation issue and say episode eight and why like someone was doing a certain thing. We'd fix it in episode say five or whatever for to have that motivation and we would actually come as a team and be like where can we insert that to help tell the story in the other episodes and make that streamlined a little bit better so we would do that a lot because there were moments here and there where we're like we don't understand why that character's doing that maybe we should do something in this episode and we could fit it in this episode to make that make sense in the other episodes we did a lot of that kind of stuff which was really fun I, I think that's the best part of working as a team. Were you guys working as a team in a specific location or did COVID screw all that up? Yes, we were in Atlanta for about three to four Four months. months. Four Four months. months. Four months, yeah. We got back at the end of February. I remember me and Zine and my assistant flew back together and we had like a lunch at a table in the airport. And I think back now, because it was like right before the pandemic hit. And I was like, we could have gotten sick. (laughs) We were eating in the airport together. And then we flew back and literally three weeks after we got back, we completely shut down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were getting set up on the Disney lot. Yeah, two weeks into that, they're like, these numbers keep going up. You guys should probably go home. Yeah. Wow, and then all the rest of the series was edited at home. Yep, right here. Oh, right there. (laughs) You roll out of bed and land in your edit chair. You know what? I wouldn't trade it though because knocking an hour and a half commute off. (laughs) I know. Each direction, there's a downfall for working remote, but one of the things that it allows more efficient work. And it also, for the first time, at least for me, and I'm sure for everyone else, created a work-life balance that you can sit there and step away and have lunch with your family or dinner with your family. Conversely, it's the nine o'clock at night, they can call you and say, hey, since you're there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, occasionally. I would personally try to set some boundaries boundaries pretty early on. Sometimes it's unavoidable, which that's fine. But as long as the unavoidable doesn't become the regular. The unavoidable sometimes would even happen when working on the studio lot where you'd be driving home You'd be, you know, at your doorstep. They say, we need you to come back. Yeah. So I think the problem is like, you can never turn it off as being from home. You could never turn it off. I'm always worried. And I'm like, oh, I could just go and do some work. And I don't like that. I like separating the two and having a break. And I don't really have that luxury I think anymore (laughs) since it's right here in our houses now. But I do go on the lot now just to get away from my house because I'm really tired of it. Tired of these four walls. (laughs) One of the things that we did find out though working remotely was that actually interdepartmentally, especially with a show that was so heavy with visual effects, 
that there was now a cohesive conversation between the departments because when we would have meetings, it'd be a Zoom meeting and there'd be 30 people in the meeting. And people that normally would be not in these meetings were actually being privy to the knowledge. And our lead visual effects editor, Tom, pointed out where he said that this is the first time on a show and he'd done Endgame and Infinity War, that he was yeah. aware of what every shot was going on at any given time, which fundamentally was important this one since we were on such an accelerated schedule, even though it took us a long time to get it done. Sure. I actually didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, I guess the effects editors aren't always in those meetings, are they? No. Correct, yeah. Well, that makes sense. I want to talk a little bit about some of the craft stuff. Each episode starts in a TV world, and it seems like it's edited like those TV worlds. And then eventually you transition out of that. Can you guys talk to me about deciding on, oh, I'm editing like it's the 70s or the 90s or whatever it is, and then going, okay, now I'm editing like a Marvel movie and making that transition from one to the other. We had on episode two an instance of that where we had a scene where it was cut more feature-like and Matt came in and it was when they came back after the talent show. And Matt basically said that this was not indicative of that time period. And we had to sit there and reimagine scene, not greatly, but sure. simplify yeah. it down and get rid of some of the flashiness of what would have been a cool cut in a movie to make it more a flat two-dimensional 1960s bewitched cut. I know Nona, myself, Tim, and Michael, we were all watching old shows on Amazon like every other night. Like, all right, let's watch some Bewitched and some Dick Van Dyke and Malcolm in the Middle and Family Ties. And so by doing that, you're sort of absorbing those rhythms and hopefully translating it. But yeah, there was a lot of thought that went into that. I mean, they were written that way, of course, but then there's the execution of it. So we have to emulate, if you will, the style to keep it, because we were all very much into keeping it into that groove of the different time periods. I remember being like, okay, I can't have it that heavy. But the problem is sometimes the jokes don't fall. Sometimes you have to speed it up mm -hmm. or you have to speed a moment up because yeah. it's not landing for an audience of our time. So you have to figure out a way, especially I think in the 70s episode, I remember cut it a little longer, like give it more space than I normally do. And then Matt came in and was like, no, 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 let's speed it up. And then I sped it up too fast. And then I had a happy, <laughs> you know what I mean? You do that kind of thing. And then adding laugh track is a totally different thing too. Adding laugh track, you need time for the laugh track. You have to hold for it. And episodes two and three weren't shot in front of an audience. So you had to build the laugh tracks in. Episode one was. That's interesting though. Episode one was shot with a live, live audience. audience. So Tim had a little bit more help with the timing, I think, of space and knowing how much space. But with two and three, we didn't. And Brady Bunch wasn't actually shot in front of a live audience. They added the laugh track to it later on. And so I would watch a lot of Brady Bunch and do a lot of research. And they used a lot of close-ups actually, like surprisingly a ton of close-ups and they would go in for cuts for each character. So you'll see that episode one is much more wide and two is much more wide and you stay in the wides. But in three, we go more in close-ups because it emulates the more of the time of how they would cut it. When I interviewed Kirk Baxter about Mank, I asked him about that. I'm like, clearly it's shot like the period, but it didn't feel like it was edited like the period. And he goes, that's because it would have been interminable. It would have been terrible if we had cut that movie like an audience was used to seeing movies cut back then. It would have been so slow and we wouldn't have been able to have the impact. Right. 
And we did both, I think. We did the best of both worlds. I think we were trying to really capture the period as best we could, but also make it for a modern audience to like and enjoy. I think we were pretty successful at it for the most part, especially as you get to the later episodes, obviously it becomes more modern and faster. And that, especially like the Malcolm, that's like, Oh yeah. <laughs> fast, you know, which scene cut. Um, I just rewatched that episode this morning. So that was exactly, I felt like well, it's speedy compared to watching the first episode, for example. What were some of the things that you were looking at when you were watching an episode of the Dick Van Dyke show or Malcolm in the Middle or Brady Bunch? What were you looking at to give you the clues of how to edit? Well, like for Malcolm though, it was actually even a different thing because not only was it a pictorially driven episode, it was also sonically driven. There was a lot of little tricks that they use on that, which you have to take into account too, that sometimes we'd sit there and play with music to jam that stuff up to make it feel faster. Intra-frame modifications, like throwing in whip pans that weren't shot just to give it that craziness that was going on as opposed to the earlier episodes, which were, I think, more thought out. Yeah, I wouldn't say the earlier were more thought. I mean, everything was thought out, but uh, yeah, it's just the earlier ones were... I mean, the direction really guided us. Matt Shackman did an amazing job. They really planned out. First three were definitely four by three and the way that they zoomed in on moments or whatnot. I mean, I'll speak for Tim, but the first episode when they're at the dinner table, the intentional push-ins of the Twilight kind of zony, that was intentional. And they made it more cinematic because you're getting a little bit out of that four by three feel to it. Yeah. We're going more cinematic. That was a completely intentional moment. Same with in episode two. And we had that in episode three at the very end with the intercut. And then we kind of went more cinematic music too. We struggled with music in that intercut in three, where the intercut was, was a different place. The way they was written, the way we cut it, it changed over time. We really had to make it really tense. And it was a hard moment because we didn't exactly know where to intercut it from the inside to the outside. It was kind of a work in progress as we were continuing. And so was the music. We ended up having Chris Beck write a music cue that was both uh, part of the time, but also transformed into more of a cinematic thing. Mm -hmm. And that was actually Kevin Feige's idea. And it was really, really interesting weave between the two. And I think he killed it on that one. It took a long time to get it to that place, but it's one of my favorite pieces now, looking back on the experience. I agree. That's that Brady Bunch intercut. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's so good. So good. Let's talk a little about intercutting between the various storylines, obviously kind of the inside and the outside, and how often those things were scripted. And then when they weren't scripted, why did they change? For that, it just didn't feel tense enough. I think the audience was ahead of what was going on at a certain point. And then we were like, no, 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 we can't do that. We have to have them be surprised by what's going on. And so where we would go from one place to the next, it was based on what is the audience know at that point or do they not know? And so figuring that out was difficult because there was only so many places where you could cut out where it didn't feel so jarring. So I had a lot of different versions of that until we really found the right version. And then music obviously really helped in that. And then transitioning it from the four by three to the anamorphic was also a process because we had different kinds of stylistic 
versions of it. Like we had static at one point and then we ended up just being like, no, we should just do the frame shift. And that was a much better. And, and it's cool because you see it shift slowly and you're like, oh, okay, <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> and then we go outside and you're like, what the hell just happened? And then you go into four and then you're like, what? <laughs> so I think all the steps we were doing was so that we could, you know, help the audience guide them a little bit piece by piece, revealing small moments to keep it interesting. Yeah. yeah. Always leave them with a question. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's one of those ideas that everybody knows you've got to be ahead of the audience or else you're dying. So I love that idea. The other thing that I was noticing with one of the episodes that felt so right for the style was the breaking the fourth wall episode there's those little push-ins and i was trying to think how much of those were real and how much maybe were done in editorial the little bumps into those fourth wall moments the modern family episode i think a lot of that was in camera that was all on camera yeah, all in Je camera. yeah jess our cinematographer a director of photography just fantastic i mean a lot of research went in on his part for era accurate lenses, those little touches that you're talking about. I mean, he was just really phenomenally good. I love that. I want to step outside of the series for a little discussion for a moment. If you don't mind, do you all have agents? Who should have an agent? And what's the value of an agent besides just getting you work? Yeah, all of us do have agents. Yes. I've had a number of agents over my career. My career has been quite a bit different than traditional in that I didn't come up through the assistant editor route. I went to school with David Green and did his first three indie movies. And that happened like a year after film school graduation. So right out of the gate, I'm doing indie movies that get festival buzz. That's not to say I wasn't trying to get work as an assistant, because I was, but the problem is when you cut an indie film that gets festival traction, nobody wants to hire you as an assistant because they think you're after their job. That's so, not good, man. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a real catch-22. And so I took advantage of every opportunity. And because of those films getting some festival heat, I garnered some agent interest early on. When All the Real Girls hit Sundance, I had some interest. So I capitalized on it. And there were a small agency at the time. That's the best you can kind of hope for early on. And they get you in rooms. As you move up, you discover that you have to move with your career as far as your agent goes and meaning that you uh, need to switch agents you need to fire your agents and switch agents yes absolutely if you discover that they are not working for you and they're working against you then yeah you need to find someone that's going to be on your side eventually i went through a number of agencies and some old agents are still very good friends of mine and i love them so I don't want to sound like I'm bitter against any old agents, but I did eventually land at UTA and Mike Ruby. Agents become invaluable because they can get you into rooms that you yourself cannot get into, especially on a studio project level. It's just another one of those industry catch-22s. You know, sometimes you luck out and you work with a director that will take you with them for their entire ride. Like case in point would be Barry and, and Joy, and which I think they're doing great work and they got a fabulous relationship and I'll pretty much watch anything they do just because it's interesting. 
I just talked to her yesterday, and although she has that built-in Thelma and Martin kind of relationship, she also has an agent that she loves. Yeah. <laughs> it still helps. I mean, she's got an advantage, I would imagine, when Barry isn't doing a project because these projects take so long to set up. You have to keep working as an editor. You know, you don't make the same pay scale as a director might and so forth. So you have to keep working. Yeah. And you're working a smaller amount of time. They're working five years on a project and you're working one. Right. Well, producer and director are on it the longest, then the editor. Yep. Right. <laughs> and then downhill and everybody on production, they're like, as Michael Six likes Six weeks say, or something. Yeah. What is that? The circus? Uh... Oh, carny life stuff. So. Carny life, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, what about some other voices here? I have an agent. I'm actually the same agency as... Zane. It's funny. We're all, uh, we're all in the same agency. I didn't have an agent for a long time. I started editing television, a lot of television, started in network and then went into more cable kinds of stuff like The Strain, which was on FX. And then I think at a certain point, I was like, I need diversity in how to my career. And I thought maybe it would be time. I have a few credits under my belt. Maybe an agency will take me on. I have a few good credits. And I interviewed a couple and I liked UTA. So I went with them and they're a little bit bigger agency. And then I ended up getting on the boys because I know the showrunner from another show I worked on. And actually that was a UTA packaged show, actually. So it worked out in a weird way. And they haven't really helped me get a job. I haven't gotten a job through my agency. But I'm hopeful with these bigger projects that I've done that they can get me in the room for a studio general meetings so that I end up getting on a movie or something like that. Because I haven't done a movie. I've done like an indie movie back when I was at a film school helping friends out, but I've never done a movie. And so that would be the next step if this all works out. So they can actually help get me in those rooms with the generals of all the feature people. So hopefully that happens. Not to say that I can't do that myself, but they can prop me up and I don't have to do all that work. And also they can get you better rates. They are there to help you get better rates. And I am terrible at negotiating, especially for myself, because you just never think that you're good enough. And you don't know what people are making either. There are people that are making way more and you're like, what, they're making that much? I can make that much. Like what? Like the agent is there to help guide you and be like, this is what we can get you here. And they help you shape your career in a way. At first I was really hesitant on the agent thing. I was like, you know, they haven't helped me at all. I keep getting my own jobs. They're not helping me with my rate. And then little by little, as your career progresses, they've helped me out a little bit more. Granted, my career has gone a little bit better. Maybe that's probably part of it, but I don't know. Everyone has a different relationship with their agents. I really like my agents. So that's also the case. Michael, are, are you, are you Mike Ruby? No, no, sorry. Yeah. I have Mike yeah. Ruby at UTA. Yeah, for me, I'm with APA, which is a larger mid-range agency. They're, I think, reported rated like number four or five under the big three. And they actually sought me out, which I thought was funny, as opposed to me reaching out to find one. And what I liked about them was that it was a medium fish, medium pond kind of scenario. So that I knew that the thing is that they have big A-list editors also. Like they got Craig Wood over there and other people like that. 
But with me, it's more of a personalized thing. And yeah, the big thing is it's just repeating what everyone's saying, which is it gives a lot of opportunities to get scripts sent to you to read. They put your name in front of people, which I think is definitely handy. And to touch on Nona, getting past the nitty gritty of negotiation. And you don't have to feel like an a-hole asking, this is how much money I want. And they're the ones that get to be the bad guy for you, which was like on the current movie I'm on. That was the thing was the they and what I wanted were two different things. And I let Gil be the bad guy and everything worked out for what I wanted it to be. So Very um, there's no hard feelings, right? That's your agent talking, not you. Yeah. You know, to touch on what you're saying, though, the thing is that editors tend to be, a, I think, a neurotic lot that never really know, and I'm not saying all of them, but what their self-worth is to the project, what they bring in. Yeah. And we are just this wonderful service industry that helps support the director, the producers, the studio. And how do you quantify that with a monetary number? And also, as we all know, a studio is going to sit there and try to pay you the least it's going to have to pay you anyway. And Alan Bell said something similar to me recently, which was, if I don't want to do something, my agent can say that they don't want me to do it and I don't look like the bad guy. They're not offended that I don't want to work on their project. It's just the agent making the decision. Yeah, there is great truth to that. There are some people that still work around that. As you progress, I have noticed you do form relationships with assorted studio people. That's A-S-S-O-R-T-E-D, not A-S-O-R-D-I-D, studio people. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. (laughs) Assorted studio people was something I've found over the past four years or so is that my agent will tell them that I'm not available, can't do the project, blah, blah, blah. And then my phone rings and it's the (laughs) studio person confirming whether or not what my agent just told them is the truth. And so, yes, that happens too. Oh yeah. That's happened to me too. (laughs) Oh, very interesting. Very interesting. And so, yeah, sometimes you do have to just make sure you're on the same page with your agent in those cases and tell whoever's calling you personally the same story. But yeah, it does happen. And I don't know why, but I'm always surprised when it does. Mm. Well, I think it's a personal relationship with the studio. Like I had that problem. I had a producer call me being like, your agent's asking for too much money. (laughs) I was like, why are you calling me? Yeah. <laughs> What's the point of the agent is for? <laughs> That's right. And well, you're so- right. That is the point of the agent. <laughs> yep. That's an interesting little discussion. I appreciate you guys taking that diversion with me. Did you guys deliver the entire series as one big block or was it individual? Yeah. Individual. By week, wasn't it pretty much bi-weekly when we were really in our hardcore delivery? Like every other week? Dates, yeah, right? Every- set dates where we had to hit those dates and yeah. like, usually we finished on that exact date <laughs> and if we could have taken a little bit more time we would have but we just we had to hit certain dates yeah the only yeah. episode that had the extension which was by seven days was the finale mm-hmm. yeah but and, you held yeah. all of the episodes long enough that you were able to as Nona's pointing out that you were able to do some oh let's go back into this episode and put a little foreshadowing or something in I wouldn't say we held them. I mean, we knew exactly our air dates. The air dates were revealed to us, I think, maybe the same week as we found out when we were going back to shoot the rest of the show. We had a COVID interruption in production. So based on those dates, 
everything sort of gets back timed because in the streaming world, streaming requires a certain number of days to encode everything, prep everything for all international territories, all the foreign language dubbing. Yeah. yeah, and every format from iPhone to yeah. 60 yeah. television set. So all of that takes a certain chunk of days from the air date. So as of that air date, all those formats are released, bam, into the world at one time. So back timing from that, you've got that boom encoding period. And so we were backed up against that constantly and so it's on a floating thing by the episode release or air date rather but yeah even with the encoding started to interrupt we broke the rules on that too we were told it was x amount of days and as our schedules pushed they figured out how many days they could whittle off those encoding days yeah literally just come right to the wire yeah. to the point where kind of yeah it was crazy how far can we push it because yeah. we needed the time as I mentioned, we had the COVID interruption in shooting. So Nona was front loaded. I was back loaded. I had my three episodes. I think before we went into the last stage of shooting, I think I had maybe 30% of material for all three of my episodes. Which is what you mean by back loaded. Exactly. Yeah. The show I'm on now, I'm front loaded in which I've got practically 80% of the episodes that I'm doing now. And that was Nona's case on one division. She yeah. was front-loaded. And, Tim was and, in the middle. Tim had a lot of his stuff too, but he got it sprinkled in very nicely. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he was also because the first episode being the live audience, that one was in the can when we were in right. Atlanta, basically. Yeah. Except the exterior portion of the main title. I think they shot that in yeah. LA because they were always going to shoot in LA we were just going to shoot in April and what ended up happening is that we pushed it all the way until we could shoot and then with encoding you have to understand it was also during the holidays that we were going to start doing it and so we'd have to actually give them more time because of the holiday break because sure. certain regions and territories wouldn't work during the holidays mm -hmm. period. So, period like right. they won't work so <laughs> So we had to deliver a couple of those episodes, especially the early ones, earlier than we wanted to probably because of that encoding process. What does it do for you, good or bad, when you're front-loaded or back-loaded so heavily? Does it help to be front-loaded? Does it hurt? I feel like we should have been balanced a little bit better. I wonder if we had changed certain episodes. Like I came in last because I was coming off of the boys straight on into Atlanta. I was like two weeks behind Tim and Zine. And I had five days of dailies already sitting there for me from three of my episodes already. And I was like, shit, <laughs> like, <laughs> I like, damn it. And we wonder like, maybe Zine should have taken one of my episodes and I should have taken his. And then we would have had a little bit more of a balance and it would have been a little bit better schedule wise for all of us in that sense. But it's always a learning experience. And I mean, it also depends on the show. Like, uh, example, now, if there's a show that is heavy visual effects or a certain number of those episodes that are heavy VFX, then yeah, totally advantageous to try to get those shot first so all of that can go into the pipeline. 
right. the sooner the better, because there's so many stages to it. There's the look dev, which is its own process. That's when they take a certain number of select shots and start developing to see what things are going to look like in the VFX environment, if you will. So it's everything from what a character looks like to what a background might look like. What the wall know. surrounding the city looks like. Exactly. A lot of that depends as well. So it's just the luck of the draw. Honestly. You guys all had cut TV before this. Do you think that there was any thought of giving an episode to one of you or the other because you'd cut a show that was from that era? <laughs> Obviously, none of you had cut a show like uh, Lucille Ball or Dick Van Dyke. Well, I'll say this. I didn't come from comedy. Like Tim and Zane both come from comedy. So I think Tim comes from Always Sunny. And so I think obviously he would get the first episode just because Matt has worked with him before. And I have worked with Matt too, but only on one episode. They have a multi-year, multi-episode relationship. And so I think he trusted Tim's comedic instincts. And I think that was probably really smart to have him do that first episode and you know me learning from both of these guys because they're both incredible at comedy so that was really fun just to be part of it because comedy is hard <laughs> it is hard uh i don't particularly love it as an editor <laughs> but it was really fun to be a part of it and learn from everyone on the team i miss you guys it's been so sad not being on the same show oh that's so sweet we got to talk on a sidebar phone yeah. call and swap stories. Oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard when you come from a show where everyone's so lovely and fantastic and we all work so well together. And we didn't really get a chance to be in the offices together in Disney. And those offices were like my favorite offices, guys. They were oh, incredible. Yeah. And we didn't get to spend more than two weeks in those offices. So and, sad. And it's so sad and it was just really fun in Atlanta and I'm really glad we got to do all of that but it's also sad that we're not all working together again it was a really amazing experience and and memorable because of COVID we wouldn't have been on the show as long as we were if COVID hadn't happened we were supposed to be done in September I think yeah. originally yeah. Yeah. Um, COVID also allowed this show to become the magic that it was because probably. Not often do you get a year and a half to work on a six-episode television show. I mean, that's generally delegated to a feature-length thing so that you can work your stuff out. And I think really that allowed WandaVision to really exceed. It was always going to be something cool and different, but even exceed that idea of what it was. And I think it's one of the most honed shows I've ever seen. What was the break like? You said that there was a break, obviously, for COVID, and you guys kept working through that, correct? Yeah, correct. That's what I mean. Was, we were able to massage the footage for a year and a half. We were able to really talk about the stuff that had yet to be shot and sort of fine tune and plan for that and really discuss what was necessary versus a diversion in story. Like, what was the story really about and how do we hone it down to that? And mixing in, of course, the rules of shooting had to change due to COVID. You know, it was a whole thing. I was laughing a second ago because <laughs> I did a small Q&A with the school I graduated from, uh, University of North Carolina School of Filmmaking. I talked to the graduating class That's cool. and one of my friends, Michael Miller, he's a professor there now, and he opened it up to questions for the students. First question right out of the gate. 
I noticed that you cut the finale. Were you also disappointed by it? <laughs> no! They, they didn't say that. Did they really say that? Right out of the gate. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I wasn't disappointed by it. Oh, I mean, if we had more time, God. we wish we had more time. No matter what, you're always going to wish you had more time. Yeah, but yeah. Some people are just going to love it. And then some people are going to be like, mm, Man, disappointed. What did they <laughs> say? Why were they disappointed? I didn't get into it. I just, <laughs> I, I, I just answered. I answered the said, question like, you, you said, know. Well, really, Nona edited that episode. So uh. <laughs> you can say that. I don't care. <laughs> So like I thought, wow, ballsy question. Ballsy man. question. Okay. Yeah. I, I try not to ask questions like that. With questions like that, you'll go far real fast. <laughs> that, I want to be like, you try it. That, you try uh, it. That, that kid probably has a good uh, chance of getting a studio job. Yes, I would imagine so. <laughs> you too could work for the studio with that kind of attitude. Congratulations. Oh we have a place for you in our organization. You mentioned how hard comedy is to edit, and that I've heard many times. What do you think is so hard? Is it just pacing and rhythm? Yes, because I may have a different idea of what's funny other than the average human being. And so I think honing in on the right kind of pace is really where it's at. Because I, I don't know if I have that internal clock. I mean, I think you learn it too. Like doing so many comedies over the years, you learn that that's the right timing or not. And I don't necessarily know that yet or have that ingrated into my system yet. You know, I do more action drama, satire kind of stuff more than like hit a joke and there's a payoff. That's a completely different kind of editing in my mind. And there's no sense of continuity or anything. You just gotta hit those moments and you don't care. That's the thing about editing comedy. You just don't care about that kind of stuff. You just need to well, hit the, the joke. The other thing though is there's different types of comedy also that yeah. we need to discuss. Like fortunately this was scripted comedy. Yes. So it's a different thing than our background prior, which is improvisational comedy, where it's kind of a weird hybrid of non-scripted and scripted storytelling. But either or, it's always based on that timing of when to hold, when not to hold. Continuity be damned. If the continuity sucks and the joke lands, yeah. you have to get over that kind of thing that this doesn't look right. As one person pointed out to me a long time ago, if you really want to sit there and learn about comedy, watch a Judd Apatow movie with the sound off because he will see editorially. You'll notice the continuity errors. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Big time. Which is ironic because I would cut a lot of the Seth stuff with the dialogue down and I still do and I wasn't cutting for continuity I was just cutting for what I thought was a funny visual rhythm and then I'd go back and try to see okay well what are they saying did I just totally screw this up and the dialogue is gonna work or isn't it gonna work but I mean to Nona's point it's for lack of a better term a muscle that you develop and the more that you dabble in it you pick things up I mean in between projects before WandaVision I was able to help out Brian Fogle for a very brief amount of time on I can't really say what that project was but at the time he was working on the dissident oh yeah the documentary fantastic guy and I discovered during that process that's a muscle the documentary muscle is something I am way out of my element I was going in in there and struggling poorly and, and badly 
every day. And I got a little depressed and I shouldn't have been so hard on myself. And Brian was extremely kind. It was also stressful because I was buying a house uh, <laughs> for the first time too. So there was a lot going on at the time. That's something that I discovered that I have incredible respect for. Those guys are amazing. Because I mean, I may have that skill if I devoted another 10 years to it, but I was so out of my element. All I could talk about was just big picture story arcs, you know, but then I was just so unskilled at that. Yeah, uh, there are different types of storytelling for sure. Very much. Those guys are amazing. You mentioned, Zine, about finding a funny visual rhythm. In other words, choosing setups in an order that you think work with a rhythm to them. When you guys are cutting, are you consciously trying to decide on a series of setups that you think we're going to build to where you want to go? Or is it all performance? Or are you going, no, I really need to be on the wide. I really need to be on a two. This moment calls for this shot instead of this moment calls for this performance. It shifts. It really does. No two things are the same. A lot of that technique that I just talked about of cutting with no sound just stemmed from pure experimentation. It's something that I carry with me on every project that I do. It doesn't all the time work, but it's sort of a new way to see these patterns. It's just something that starts to kind of become ingrained in your head after a while. You pick up these patterns. Visual rhythms can be as funny as typical setup payoff jokes. And so if the visual rhythm of it is supporting these jokes, then all the better. Sometimes that's not the case. You need to get to that delivery of a line that was only delivered in this shot because, you know, Michael and I have done many Seth movies together. Sometimes they will only get that line, that magical killer drop dead funny line in one angle because they had run through so many iterations of, all right, riff on this idea, riff on this idea. And bam, there it is in one little piece. So if the building up around that, if you can structure it in such a way that both visual and audio is supporting to get to that punchline, all the better. Sometimes you win, sometimes you don't. <laughs> sometimes when you get that magic tidbit that is really the funniest thing you've ever heard and you go down the rabbit hole of trying to get to it and you can't get to it. Yeah, there's a lot of that too. Sometimes oh, it's yeah. on the wide, right? Or it's on the wrong angle. Well, yeah. the, the bigger thing is you won't have the, the dialogue that will lead you to that joke. So you have your setup and you've got your end game <clears throat> connected tissue where everyone's saying whatever they're saying and that's where you might spend a day and a half to try to get to that joke. Totally. But that's something you're talking about that's improvisational, not scripted. Yeah. Yeah. Mostly an improvisational. Yes. That always happens. Scripted. Similar thing. I mean, me personally, yeah, I want to see if I can build a visual rhythm up to that scripted line as well. Because the dynamics between going close or far out, there can be a funny rhythm in that. It's hard to explain. It's just a feel thing. And again, that's my tastes. Not everybody is going to have those same comedic tastes. Yeah, the way I go for the comedy is it's more of an explorative thing where, again, I know where we're going to end, but it's the path that I take to get there. I really don't know where it'll be. It'll just be one thing will be got another to be got another that will eventually lead to the end joke. And that's why comedy is hard. <laughs> Nona, when you are constructing a scene, 
how conscious are you of the specific setups? I look at everything and I pull selects of everything that I like. I do like a select reel and then I use that select reel to cut with. And sometimes I can use a lot of the shots and sometimes I can't. Sometimes it just doesn't work and some of the shots don't quite work. But I also like follow what the director has intended based on the camera moves and stuff like that. You can read what they're intending based on how they're shooting it. Absolutely. Yep. And I really try to follow that guide in a way and follow their direction. And they are telling me without telling me that they want to push in on this shot. They pushed in on the shot with a close up, and I need to use that shot and trying to mimic how they would cut it basically based on how they shot it. And I really do follow that. And sometimes I veer off when things aren't quite working, obviously in the way that they're directing it, but most of the time that's what I try to do. And it's for the most part worked for me. I'm not one of those very cutty editors. I don't really like to cut when you don't need to cut. If a performance lands for me and I can stay on it as long as I can, I will. Just because I don't like to break up the rhythm because you're in it. And when you're in it, when you cut, you're like, it needs to flow in a certain way. So I really feel the footage and read what it's telling me. And it's all really kind of instinctual. I can't really say what it is. It's just, you're like, cut, <laughs> like in your head, you're like, that's the cut. <laughs> that awesome shot though, that you can't use also. Oh yeah. The director gives you something and you'll spend a day just trying to figure out how to make that shot work. And you know that the director's intended you to use it mm-hmm. and it's not organic to the visual language of what you're putting together. Mm. I had that one time on the current show I'm on, the director had this beautiful shot and she's like, can we use this? And I was like, oh, I don't know. It's going to break up the rhythm. And then I figured it out. I found the right spot. <laughs> but like it took a whole day to be like, oh, okay, now I found the spot. But yeah, sometimes it's really hard to find those places for those big, cool shots. I love it. You guys are all so filled with great information that I want to go the rest of the day talking to you, but I know that you all have many other things to do. So thank you all for joining us on Art of the Cut, and thank you for your wisdom and things you had to say. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. That's it for Art of the Cut this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, these interviews are also available to read at blog.frame.io, where they're supported with great visual content, images, video clips, and more. Also, it's a great opportunity to check out some of the other expert content on the blog for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a Topic-Driven Curated Experience. Thanks to my guests, Nona Kodai, ACE, Zine Baker, ACE, and Michael A. Weber. Thanks also to Jake Gum for editing today's podcast using Adobe Audition. Thanks to Frame.io for their support of Art of the Cut and its pledge to keep this content coming your way. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. And so you don't miss all the great upcoming interviews on the Art of the Cut podcast, subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And if you have a friend in the film business or who aspires to be in the film business, make sure to tell them about the Art of the Cut podcast and blog.frame.io.